This is Create Now, the show that explores creative and generative approaches to changing the systems that rule our world. We are sector agnostic, and our guests come from a myriad of different disciplines and practices, but they all share one thing in common. They are people who are creatively rethinking and remaking sectors once thought unchangeable. On this episode, I speak with Ben Hall, a Bennington College alumnus who is now the co-owner of Russell Street Deli in Detroit, Michigan. Ben and his business partner, Jason Murphy, started as dishwashers there in the 1990s and bought the deli in the early 2000s. They've recently expanded their business to include making organic soups with no preservatives, which are currently available in select whole food stores and on the menus of Detroit's public schools. Their commitment to integrity, high wages, good employee benefits, and sustainability have put them on the map as exemplars of how ethical and responsible business practices can positively impact local communities. I'm Robert Rancic, and this is Create Now. Ben, it's a pleasure to welcome you back to Bennington College here at the Center for the Advancement of Public Action. And it's especially exciting uh, to have learned more about your activities since you graduated in 2004. And I'm hoping that you can talk us through the process of coming to Bennington, graduating, and then returning to your hometown of Detroit and becoming the owner of Russell Street Deli. Uh, Well, I worked at Russell Street Deli for 10 years. all the way through Bennington, that was my kind of baseline uh, backup work that I needed. Uh, So did my business partner, Jason Murphy. Uh, He also went to Bennington. Um, From 2004 to 2007, we were just kind of working it out. Jason was at school, I was back at home working on a variety of creative practices, uh, not really getting anywhere, but I also blew out my leg um, and developed, uh, I couldn't walk for almost seven months. And it took me about three years to get on a bike again. Um, So it was a time of a lot of (laughs) contemplation and theorizing and conjecture and not much movement. Um, We got offered the restaurant in 2007, uh, the fall of 2007, uh, which if you look on the kind of graph of the crash, that's kind of when it starts. By 2008, it's in full swing. Uh, Michigan is just getting hammered because of the auto industry. But the restaurant was up for thirty five was up thirty five percent. So we had bought the restaurant with the intention of kind of polishing it and selling it, and it turned out we were pretty good at it. So as a consequence, we held on to it, and then Jason went back to finish undergrad. And at which point, I he came home from his first term back at Bennington. So I guess he was a junior then, and he was like, "Okay, you have the summer off," because I go back next year. And I was, it had never occurred to me that we were kind of time banking. So time banking was pretty important right from the beginning in terms of the management structure uh, and in terms of time off and following other things. So I had the whole summer. He was at school. I decided to apply for grad school. So I started working on that. I ended up going to Columbia. But during that time, we were also, because we were kind of stuck with the restaurant because we couldn't sell it because no one could get credit in 2008. Um, We basically worked in every way that we could to kind of assess what labor actually looked like in Detroit. Uh, Having worked at the restaurant as $7 an hour workers, as $8 an hour workers, we knew that it was kind of a zero sum game for the employee and we didn't want to be 
extractive employers, but and it's hard being someone who's kind of like fighting the man or saying fuck the man your whole life. All of a sudden you're the man and you're like, I know why these people hate me. Um, and I think it's kind of like that logical fallacy with all, where all factory owners want to believe that their employees like them. Um, I didn't want them. It's kind of like some parent thing. Like I didn't want them to like them. I just wanted to know. They didn't even have to know I was doing the right thing. I just wanted to do the right thing because I thought that it was. And Jason and I looked really closely. And so we were experiencing a lot of growth at that time, which gave us a lot of maneuverability in terms of trying different things, in terms of trying different training programs. Um, when I went back to school, that was about the, that was in 2010. Um, that was the time that we really started to take stock of what we had actually developed and created. Uh, shortly thereafter, someone found out that we paid high wages and we were interviewed for a book by this woman, Saru Jayaraman, who runs the Restaurant Opportunity Center. Um, she interviewed us and when the book came out on, I think, Oxford University Press, it was kind of just on expurgated interviews. And I was like, huh. Um, and then a year, one year later, I went to the James Beard boot camp for uh, Chefs for Policy and Action, uh, which at that time was through the Chefs at Action Network, uh, which was a separate arm of the Beard Foundation, has now been absorbed by Beard. Um, and again, it kind of turned out that we were... At the, we, we were at the leading edge of what was happening in terms of labor. Having not really known, we were just kind of doing what we were doing. And then people recognizing us and saying and asking us for advice about how to do things um, let us know that at least, so we had a kind of employee ecosystem that was working, uh, profit was good, so our consumer and customer ecosystem was working well. Uh, but then also, we, as we started to like grab national recognition, and I should say that I think we had only been open for about six months, and they were trying to CNN was trying to write some story about like how Detroit fights back or something, and they had a small profile of the restaurant too, and it was these really obvious kind of eighty twenty things like we didn't leave the coffee pot on all night, you know, we started to turn off all the lights, we started recycling, we started compost. And to this day, I mean, one of the best metrics that we have of the restaurant is the restaurant is multiple times more busy than it was when we bought it. But we still use the same size dumpster. Um, and that's just because, you know, if you're not really looking at resource allocation, then how can you really look at waste stream management? So if you look upstream, downstream, for profit, for labor, you start to have a lot of interesting questions if it's not kind of directed towards you know, the founder's ego. Um, and currently, uh, we mostly work, we principally work on soup and manufacturing soup for the Detroit Public Schools, manufacturing it for about 110 grocery stores. In Michigan, we're about to go to the whole Midwest in the very near future in the next year, uh, working on building, producing our new facility now, which will allow us to have three times growth from where we're at. And then we have to grow three times, four more times. And then we'll be in, we'll sort of find ourselves in a market then where we will be forced out of the market by the larger national and multinational competitors, even though they don't have a fresh soup. So it's either they can buy shelf space where we can't. Um, and I learned this from a couple of other people who've sold big food related businesses. Um, they'll 
buy the shelf space so we won't be able to compete or they'll buy our business. So we've already uh, started to work out how the business, whatever the business sells for, will automatically go into a trust which will fund other businesses and creative individuals to produce more of what we do in the world but allow people to experiment and take chances rather than it having to be about return growth and aggregated wealth which i mean i think we talked about this earlier and the kind of like most cartoon bubble way is that you know extract extracting labor aggregating wealth we didn't want to really do either of those things but it's really easy not to extract labor if you're not aggregating wealth it just doesn't suddenly that doesn't mean as much and you start to feel really differently about labor labor and it becomes much more flexible which typically in a restaurant is really important because labor is the only flexible cost so ben i think one of the most fascinating parts of this story is that you had uh, originally worked at the deli with uh, your bennington peer uh, jason murphy before coming to school and then after a graduation and returning you had the opportunity to purchase the deli. I wonder what that perspective of being an employee and a dishwasher um, gave you when you actually became the owner and the boss. And I know that you've been very interested in helping support uh, your current staff and employees in gaining knowledge and you know, advancing their own lives. So I'm hoping you can speak a little bit about that. Um, I'm definitely interested in raising employees up, but we're super interested in sovereignty and autonomy. So like we always just make sure that they know like the difference between sovereignty and being involved in actually the labor pool and what that means for, for the employees. We try to be as open and as honest about what that is. Even when they're moving to another job, and we try to not to create a punitive situation, which for low-wage workers, for the 7 to $14 an hour worker, which is more or less what I think about a lot is my wheelhouse also because single parent household, my mom would hold two to four jobs at a time. I mean, she pretty much always had two jobs, which because we didn't have a lot of family around just left me at home or with her at a place that a child shouldn't be like a bar, um, which wasn't necessarily bad in and of itself. It just means that being able to like kind of practically assimilate and matriculate in the normal kind of social ways that a kid does at 13 or at 10 when you're like, they're like, what did you, did you watch such and such television show? And it's like, I was at the bar on Thursday night. Um, it kind of just changes the shape of how you think about things. So having worked there, I think principally what we just tell people, I mean, a lot of the employees, if they're new employees, the older employees kind of have to school the new employees more than I can because I'm, I'm just a boss. I mean, they, it's really hard to crack that. And one of, my, one of my like best guys, he said at a certain point, he's like, yeah, he's like, I know you're a dishwasher and you know you're a dishwasher. But like now when you tell a dude, he's like, you've been wearing a sport coat so long, man, that it's like an urban myth. And, and it is to a certain degree. So it's like, again, there's like a kind of participata participatory um, rule that makes sure that there's not there's a low bar of entry or low barrier of entry so that people who come in don't have to feel like they have to learn a story they don't have to learn anything you know it's just like this is what money is this is how mo money works this is what money does this is what having health care does 
If you get a dollar raise, it means you get $2,000 extra a year. What are you gonna do with that two grand? Are you gonna blow it or are you gonna keep it? And if you keep it, how are you gonna keep it? And what does that look like? And Detroit's unique in this way that, you know, if you're a $10 an hour worker, you make $20,000, $20,800 a year. That's if you work every shift, you don't miss an hour, you don't miss a minute. Which 40 hours a week, you know, for people who live in certain places or have certain kinds of jobs is not a lot of work. But if you have a family or you're trying to do anything else, 40 hours is kind of, I would say it's the bare minimum. It's kind of the break point between how much you can work and still either have like a leisure life or a second life, which produces growth. Meaning uh, any kind of change in your life. So that 2000 bucks, while like a dollar raise for that, you know, a dollar raise might not seem like a lot to most of our listeners, but a dollar raise is 2000 bucks and it's a huge amount of money. So kind of like, you know, pausing and just saying like, I hope you understand what $2,000 is and this is what $2,000 can do because it could be a credit hour or it could be this or it could be that or it could just be, I mean, constantly uh, insurance rates are in Detroit are the highest in the state for car insurance, which is crazy because you'd think in a place with a huge auto lobby and, you know, we don't have emissions testing. There's all this shit that we don't have in Michigan because the car companies, you know, are pretty integrated into the Michigan legislature. We still have these insanely high car insurance rates, which of course has a lot to do with redlining. And it's also just like kind of blatant stupidity, no one paying attention, no one having a voice on the policy side. It's come up a lot more in the last five years, but so like a lot of my guys don't have car insurance on a regular basis. And I'm like, okay, here's what you have to do to get car insurance so that when you get pulled over as a young black male, you don't get popped. So we have a lawyer coming to do like another, like what to do if you get pulled over, like we do expungement things. It's just basically to get people to have, not, not like the soft skills that people would typically talk about, but just kind of like, you know, everything's going to be okay if you work in these parameters. And then if you decide you want to like go into some other parameters, here are all the pitfalls that you're going to experience. And everybody experiences them. The difference between you and them, principally my staff is young, black, and male. Um, the difference between you and them is that you don't have a safety net, and they do. Uh, so it's like really just... There are some clarifying things about capital, about race, about power and authority, just basically that so that people don't get reabsorbed into the system, even if that system is the system which just doesn't care about them and where they have no authority over their time or space. I mean, it, it kind of gets into a situationist logic at a certain point, but it's really important that people recognize that they have leisure time. So one of my guys like, goes on vacations now and that's his thing. And it's like, I wouldn't go to Myrtle Beach, but he's thrilled to go to Myrtle Beach. And he's the only person he knows that just gets on a plane and goes to Myrtle Beach or goes on a cruise to Jamaica. And that's an important part of him and his wife and child's life now that didn't, he didn't even know it existed. So in my brain, I'm like, you could do anything you want, man. But if you say anything, <laughs> it's got to be anything and that anything for him is being able to like go on vacations a couple times a year not super expensive not super fancy but really important for his wealth well-being and also does kind of create change in his local network 
because no one else goes on vacations. So Ben, one of the fascinating um, parts of your story is that your interest in being a business owner isn't just about creating wealth or generating a lot of income, but you consider you know, success as also helping your employees and enabling things within a community um, beyond just dollars. And I was hoping that you could speak a little bit about you know, how that evolved and where you began and then you know, when, at what point did you start to embed these values into, into the business and what are Russell Street Deli's goals in your mind now? Uh, goals, we, we work hard on goals lately. For a long time, we weren't very good at goals. Well, I mean, I will say that it, uh, it did occur holistically for the most part, and it occurred because we thought a lot, a lot about goals, but I worked with the artist Liam Gillick when I was an undergrad, and it wasn't a remark of any note, but I'm a pretty avid note taker when I'm in a room, uh, and I reflect on those notes, and I go through notes, and when I'm if I ever feel stuck, I have notebook on top of notebook on top of notebook to read through. And something he said that caught me right away was he talked to someone was kind of, I mean, I went to Columbia. There's a kind of feeling in the world that that's a professional practice school for visual artists. When in fact it's not, it turns out that Columbia is a place that attracts kind of like competitive people who have heard that it's a competitive school. So people who really avidly don't like competition don't apply there. They don't go there. So what you have is not, I won't necessarily even knock them and say strong personalities or really like competitive people. Some of those people are there. But because there's a kind of supposition that people are going to be very serious there, you end up with your cohort is 25 or 26 really serious people. And they're all like very thrilled to be there and they're all working hard. The cohort above you and the cohort below you are that way too. And he said this, so there was a kind of like class, people were going through a thing about class and money and student loans and it was during Occupy. People were, people started to get, get, got a little fractious. Um, And he said this thing, well, you know, it kind of doesn't matter for the artist because the artist is always had a high quality of life and a low income. And I was like, oh yeah, that's awesome. Because actually if you have a high quality of life, I mean, I think the American ideal is that like you have to have, to have a great quality of life, you have to have a high income. And that, that's you know very purpose-driven around vehicles and clothing and all of the things. All of these like kind of consumer or bought uh, semiotics of wealth. The fact is, is that if you're a chef and you party with, I mean, I used to think that artists partied the best. Artists know how to party pretty good. Um, Artists usually have good drugs and, you know, they get to go to cool places. Chefs, on the other hand, always have the best stuff. They're they're just better at partying. I've been to a lot of chef parties and they, they usually have better drugs and they always have the best booze and they always have the best food. So... Basically, if you're going back and forth between like a chef world and the artist world, you get to do a lot of amazing things and be around of a lot of amazing people who have a lot of, an, of amazing ideas. And also, for whatever reason, with both chefs and artists, are, I don't know, but are there any other like legit, you know, $38,000 a year, 
people that very rich people are interested in. I don't think so. I don't know any rich people who are like interested in farmers or who invite farmers or policy wonks or cashiers. Those people are never at those parties. But you can find a lot of food people and you can find a lot of artists. So I think like that kind of interloper model that Jason and I both liked because we grew up as poor kids. Um, I mean, me more than him, not that it's a contest, but like I grew up in like a, like some legit like heroin, like how are we going to like make it till Tuesday moments. Jason was pretty much like at the lower middle class. Like there was always something there, but it was just shitty, um, which is a different kind of <laughs> terrible. Um, as poor kids, we just never, I don't know, you get my house in Detroit cost 23 grand and I will probably eventually move because of my family, my growing family, but my wife doesn't really want much more than that either. It's just like, we could live in a little bit, you know, it's safe for adults. Is it safe for the kids? Could we live in a better neighborhood? Would we move? Maybe we'll move. Maybe we'll move to Canada since we live in a border town, which we think about a lot. Um, but as a, you know, the question that I think is really at the heart of what you're asking for me is just that those goals, because they weren't about aggregating wealth, it creates so much space to thinking about like what could be like the ontological basis of the restaurant, um, which is something that I hadn't, you know, a restaurant's a restaurant's a restaurant, a restaurant. It's, it can only be this, you know, it can only be, uh, you know, you have to serve food. Uh, you have to do this. You have to serve it at a profit because it's only one to three percent profit margins. Well, if it's only one to three percent profit margin, I think Jason and I came to this thing like, well, most restaurants are eighty percent of restaurants fail within the first two years. I think if that's the case and you only make one to three percent if you don't sell booze, then why would you want to fail on somebody else's model? I mean, this is the kind of central thesis. And if you're not using somebody else's model, then you got to create your own and you can draw from so many spaces if you keep it kind of small, I mean, and tight and not uh, so unwieldy that you can't actually hold it and grow it. Whereas a lot of my friends there who own restaurants, their, their growth cycle is such that if they hit a certain peak, they start getting offered like real estate offers from developers who want to have anchor tenants. So then they move into places and it's usually not, they, they're foregoing so many decisions that I just, it just never occurred to us to forego on a lot of different parts of our business where we got to a certain point and where we're like, we did this wrong, but we did it right because we kept it crude and we kept it manageable. And it was like in a language that we ourselves could understand rather than using some jargon language for a developer or a jargon language for a banker. We were just like, look, if we can't borrow the money, we can't grow. Okay, well, what happens if we don't grow? And then, of course, you start to say, yeah, well, what is growth? How, what is, is growth really <laughs> something that has to be inside of a business? And I think, you know, many years ago, you know, that's why family businesses tend to stay in business because they don't have, they're not trying to maximize growth or aggregate wealth. And it does, you know, sometimes they go out of business too. But for the most part, like if you see a place where it's like, for family members, they've already figured out their roles. They're not tripping that they're not getting enough this time or that time. 
the tips can be pooled in a way that they can't be pooled in other places because of the Department of Labor, because you have to worry about litigation. Um, and so all of those things were like a real benefit to us to just like create, I don't want to say a space of play because it's not a 1986, but or creativity, but it really is kind of like a Montessori feeling of we're constantly saying like, is this the thing that we thought we were talking about last week? And if we notice that it's kind of changed, we can reassess what that is. So speaking about creativity, you came to Russell Street Deli as an artist. So you didn't have a traditional business background. And I'm wondering from your perspective, what benefits that gave you? What, you know, of a, a, either a deficit or a leg up did being an artist and, you know, also your partner being an artist give you guys as you were creating Russell Street Deli and succeeding uh, in business for a, now over a decade? Uh, in a variety of ways. I think one of the big things is, is I was in a touring band for a while. And if you're, if you go on tour 200 days, I mean, I had an English teacher when I was a senior in high school um, said, like, everybody should either be in the military or in the meat business. And I was, like, then, like, trying to get into the military, and I'd already been in the meat business. I had already, like, worked uh, in coolers and done a variety of really terrible jobs, including cleaning chitlins, like cleaning entrails. I mean, not glamorous jobs where your feet are wet all day and it's cold, and it's just pretty miserable work. And so I was like, well, hey, I've already done that. That's not something that I'm so worried about. But I understood his point. And I think, you know, working in a restaurant is really important. You can learn a lot. But I think also, like, being in a band with, like, a collaborative band with no leader, where you're constantly reassessing, okay, so you produce a thing in the evening, and you get to talk about it the entire rest of the day while you're driving having that kind of instant like responsive data set and thinking about that because you want to get better not because you're gonna like just because you had a good gig on Tuesday in Williamstown doesn't mean you're gonna have a great gig on Wednesday in Bennington or that you're gonna have like all of a sudden the crowd's gonna be huge it just means that you're gonna actually have refined what you do a little bit more and have developed a body of knowledge and I think one thing about the restaurant is that it's for me it's kind of the same matrix and maybe it's just the way that i think about things but like if i make a soup and it's shitty like i'll know because there will be soup left in the bowl like it's a real like it's not i don't all i don't have to ask the customers all i have to do is sit in the dish tank and watch what comes back on the plates if the plates aren't clean i know i made a mistake I know I fucked something up. And then maybe on day two, I'll talk to the customers and say, hey, I noticed you had whatever, the carrot coconut soup. I, I can find out, you know, I expected it to be less creamy. I expected it to be more creamy. I didn't know what coconuts tasted like, whatever the case was. And sometimes that's a language-based thing, which I think draws me back to like the textual part of art that I'm actually really interested in. Um, I don't mean actually as in though people can't be actually interested in it, but I think that there's this kind of misnomer about amateurism versus professionalism versus bringing in a textual basis for what you do, even though like the brain sy syntactically works in language once you 
introduce language, but then as a visual artist, you're supposed to like remove language until you write an artist statement, which is like the worst language. Uh, they're kind of like, they kind of work at cross purposes. So for us, and I mean, I think this is true of Jason and also our GM Andrew, who's also an artist who we also run a gallery with. Um, we all have come to a certain kind of uh, standing agreement about what that looks like for us as creative professionals to apply that to that space. Where some people will say like, you're an artist, why aren't your paintings in the restaurant? And we're like, that's not really what this means. Um, but it is great that like if we want to do a design change or if we want to do something, we don't have to like situate ourselves in the same parameters that someone else does when they, again, defer all of those decisions to someone else who then comes back with five choices and you got to kind of choose the best one. I mean, I can, the, plus we're, you know, amongst a group, all of our different artist networks, uh, we can always call and write people and say, hey, what do you think about this? Or I made a mistake about this. Or, you know, we should build a new website, but to what end? Those questions are not questions that I think come naturally actually to businessmen, business people, because they're so, and I, I actually, I thought I misspoke when I said businessmen as though it's like super gendered, but I actually think that it's like, because it's typically male dominated, that's one of the reason that the structures work that way and that they're so kind of inflexible and ego-driven and ego-laden um, that it's so much, even in a chef environment, that it's like, if the chef, you know, doesn't like it, then you can't do it or you can't change it. It's like, well, why, why would you set up a situation which would make the customer feel like shit as soon as they walk in? Well, you know, the role of the chef, well, oh, no, no. Which one are you? Are you a chef or are you a businessman? Because if you're a businessman, then your role is a lot different in like how you treat like customer acquisition costs than if you're just being some creative person. Because like if you're an artist, like an, an artist who works in a garret, who makes paintings and people don't like the paintings, whatever, you can just keep making the paintings. And if you're good, you know, people will find you and you can be Lee Bonnecue. Three, 30 years later or something. And if you're not, you can sh keep showing at the local restaurant that likes to show paintings. But a chef in a business space can't really do, doesn't actually have that luxury. And I think for a lot of chefs that I've talked to, a lot of bad chefs particularly, um, or not open-minded chefs, they really hold on to that space that creativity and passion is caused by that. Um, or I'm not sure if it's the cause or the symptom or the disease it's one of those things but I'm more interested in the fact that you know we you buy in as a chef you buy a business to create a social situation and most of the food is interchangeable the booze is certainly interchangeable you can get a Miller Lite anywhere and it's always the same Miller Lite so like what makes your burger better than this burger and those are small things like I don't go to places that use simple green or like this is a thing in the last 10 years where people use like spray detergent on glass tables or on tables. And so now instead of only having the smell of cleaning products be in a restaurant at 5.30, by eight usually they're like covered. Now they're like reaffirming that like corporate disinfectant smell all the time, which I have really sensitive sense of smell. So when I go in there, I'm like, oh great. I smell onions, I smell cumin, I smell saffron. 
I smell simple green. Like that's a huge buzzkill for me. And I think that I'm able to articulate it, but I think a lot of customers respond to all of those very small things about sight and sound, all of the senses, especially in a place where they're doing something super intimate like eating, taking a thing and putting it in their mouth, which is the craziest form of intimacy. Like it was in my hand 30 seconds ago, now it's on your plate, now you're gonna put it in your mouth. I mean, if that's not a science fiction narrative, I don't know what is. Each moment of that is about a social space. It's not actually, like food is actually so secondary and money is tertiary to that. So it's like, you have to, in my opinion, you have to put the social first and each time you don't, that's just, that's going to be a failure or it's gonna create an unsustainable platform. So Ben, before we conclude our, our conversation, uh, of which I'm very grateful for, I wonder if you can just share a little bit of information about the upcoming exhibitions you have as an artist. Um, I have a show at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Detroit uh, on October 27th, my first museum solo. I'm very excited. I gotta say though, being at Bennington for the last couple days, I was just talking to my wife and hadn't thought about it in a good 36 hours. Just total, total erasure in my brain. No, it's totally fine. But I mean, I like hadn't, I mean, I've returned all the emails I needed to return, but like hadn't thought about it at all. So that's, I I take that as a good sign of being at Bennington. Um, And that's the big show that I have coming up. So Ben, thank you uh, so much for talking with me today about Russell Street Deli and your own work. Um, We certainly hope you've enjoyed your return to Bennington College, and we look forward to having you back real soon. Create Now is hosted on the Bennington College campus at the Center for the Advancement of Public Action. The Create Now team is Rowan Edwards, Dylan O'Hara, Anna Saldinger, Chloe Shelford, and Robert Rancic. Today's show was audio engineered by Dylan O'Hara and produced by Anna Saldinger. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. Subscribe.